This is Speaking of Faith's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Rod Dreyer, who's a columnist for the Dallas Morning News. Since you're taking the time to listen to the entire interview, I'll give you the logistical details. I spoke with Rod Dreyer via a broadcast-quality telephone connection on September 12, 2008. I was in the studios of American Public Media in St. Paul, Minnesota. Rod Dreyer was in a private recording studio in Dallas. This interview was included in the second part of our series, The Faith Life of the Party, and it was originally podcast on October 9, 2008. Download the MP3 of the produced show at speakingoffaith.org. My producers and I actually got out of town, and we had some producing production we wanted to do at a, at a Benedictine Abbey up the road. <laughs> and so we escaped. I didn't have anything to do with the convention after that, yeah, except I got watching out of it there. on TV. Yeah, I got out of there on Wednesday because I had family down in Louisiana oh, yeah. with the hurricane, and uh, mm-hmm. I thought I might have to take them some supplies. It turns out I didn't have to do that, yeah. but I was actually glad to leave anyway because it's really all you need to see by the convention you see on TV anyway. Yeah. Um, and now are you, you're in Dallas, right? That's right. Is Dallas at all on alert about all this, these storms coming right now? Oh, yeah. In fact, walking into the studio here, the winds are already picking up. Really? Yeah. The I don't know if it's still going to be hurricane strength by the time it gets into us, but um, it's supposed to start really raining about one o'clock this morning, and it's going to rain and blow all day tomorrow. Yeah, I my sister and her family are in Houston, so. Oh my gosh! Feeling, did, they, did they get out? I haven't. I haven't talked to her. Um, I'm. I'm going to. I. I actually had really not been. It was only this morning that I that I was really looking online and reading what the, what the city officials are telling people. So I'm going to call her as soon as I get off work today. Yeah, I was looking at CNN before I came in here, and they were saying that uh, the storm surge is supposed to be worse than Katrina. Yeah, they're in there, but they're telling people to just um, get water and and button batten down the hatches in their homes. Yeah, it's if you hadn't of, gotten out now, yeah. it's you know, it's too dangerous to get out because you'll be stuck yeah. on the road. But here in Dallas, I mean, you're already seeing traffic everywhere, all these evacuees oh, coming up here. Yeah. Well, um, let me say a little bit. So you've heard the program, you've you've podcasted a couple of shows and you know, I don't, uh, I'll just tell you, you know, one bias I have is that politics is not the most interesting or sophisticated place to look when you want to talk about religion <laughs> in public mm-hmm. life. Or it's not, you know, I think our focus, the public focus tends to be so much on politics. And my lens is is a lot broader than that. And, mm-hmm. and I also think, um, I think one reason I don't do too many political shows is, you know, I'm really trying to get away from the kind of... Um, the uh, d- divisive formats and the, um, I, um, but, w- you know, when we're talking politics and we're talking an election, you know, we are talking issues and, and different sides. And But I, I want to clarify that when, that I don't ask any questions that sound tough because I want to sound tough. Um, and that if I ask a question that's challenging, it, the purpose of that is really to understand Oh, and, I understand. Yeah, yeah I know okay. how you interview. It's, yeah, all right. And the, I, um, go ahead. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, the great luxury of this format is we get to have a real conversation here. I mean, we will edit it down, but I, you know, I don't even allow sound bites, so we, we get, you get to have lengthy, nuanced answers, and that's exciting. Well, I prefer that. I mean, I, I had a, a, a massive conniption over the way the whole Sarah Palin thing, and 
the pa- this past week and now having seen her on TV last night, I feel like I've gotten a little bit of that culture war stuff out of my system. Oh, that's good. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I want to talk you, about it, that. And I've been reading every, what you've been writing this week and following a lot of reactions to the Gibson interview. And I don't want to go there right away, but we will get there. And also, okay, yeah, that's also fine. I'll, in terms I'll just of your lead. how it was um, handled by our fellow journalists. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, <clears throat> hang on, we're, we've got a, some getting some signs behind the glass. Um, I really like your book. I've I read it carefully. Oh, I mean, I'd read, I've been reading you across the years and reading snippets, but I very much enjoyed it, and I liked getting into your columns and your blog, and so it's been great. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, it's you know, you say you don't want to talk about politics, and I actually appreciate that because, you know, when, my whole thing is that culture is more important than politics, and. I kind of regret that we're in campaign season now yeah. and all those old buttons are being pushed because what I've tried to do is to I know you, you know have. find yeah. yeah get back get past that. Right. And well I don't I don't think I I know politics is unimportant it's just my point and I think your point is to let's get it into the proper perspective. There's a sure. lot more to life and in fact there's a lot more that we can do better in our lives that might inform and enrich our politics. <laughs> Absolutely. Um so Mitch is on the phone he's telling me we shouldn't start talking, which probably means he's hearing something funny. Noise? Oh, I hear that, too. I hear it pulsating. Well, what was that? It was a big thump outside the door here. Yeah. <clears throat> you what? Oh, Mitch um, met you outside the Humphrey Institute, I guess. That's right. My That's producer. Right. And he he's apologizing for how he looked. He thinks he was very scruffy that day, and he wasn't for planning on meeting anyone, much less a future guest. So, <laughs> oh look, you know, when I, I was I was wearing a suit that day, but when I go into the office on my normal days, I've got my Birkenstocks <laughs> on and my jeans. Yeah, I didn't really think you judged him for that, but he wanted me to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's 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 my uniform as much as I can get away from it, for, with it in Dallas. Yeah. Okay. All right. We can go now. Um, let me also tell you what we're doing here. I've, I also, yesterday I interviewed Amy Sullivan. And, um, oh, I like her. Yeah, and we, we may put these together in one show or we may do two our individual shows, depending on, mm-hmm. we have to figure this out. But the reason I think you two are interesting voices and, you know, you're very different but similar in that you um, both are... Um, committed to, uh, you know, conservatism and liberalism, Democrat and Republican, um, both deeply religious and not uh, religious in the expected way. I mean, she's a an evangelical Democrat and you are a deeply religious Republican, but you're not evangelical. <laughs> Neither of you fits the stereotypes that have been out there these last years. Um, and... Uh, and also, you're both really sophisticated and nuanced thinkers, uh, not just about politics and religion, but about your own tradition, and I mean your political tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I think what none of us have been hearing, you know, what we try to do with this show is look at all the coverage that's happening everywhere else and say, how can we weigh in in a different way? And, you know, you're both interestingly challenging um, of your own side. Um, in ways that also help, I think, explain it better to people who are are on the outside. So that's the tone of the conversation I took with her. And we mostly talked about Barack Obama and the Democratic Party and, um, and you know, things that sh- she's uh, that, that are on her mind and that are happening and also that she feels she wants to challenge the party on. And so 
Um, you know, I think we'll you and I will mostly talk about the Republican Party and John McCain and Sarah Palin, as opposed to talking about the other side, which is what we get a lot of in in other media. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, sense. not I mean, that I, I, I. Yeah, sorry. No, I just I, I don't. I'm not one of these people who's fired up against Barack Obama. I oppose yeah. him for philosophical reasons, but I actually like the guy and regret yeah. that I can't vote for him. Yeah. So. So anyway, so and you know, it's not that McCain or Ann Palin didn't come up in my conversation with her, but it it was more about <laughs> thinking um, in in both informative and critical ways about one's own side. So um, okay, all right, and that's what you do anyway. So um, I just you know want to start a little bit with oh, and let me say one other thing before this is a long preface. Um, I'm fascinated <laughs> by your conversion to Eastern Orthodoxy and. Um, and I don't actually think we're going to get to talk about that much. It really would be another show. But I, I do want to talk about it, but I'm kind of kind of save it for closer to the end. So I don't want you to think that we're letting that go. Okay, and that's I actually, fine. I want to, I'd like to have a large, longer conversation with you just about that at some point. You know, it's funny how that all came down around the same time that I really got disillusioned with the Republican Party. Yeah, yeah. Politics, so, so. But I, I think actually that's the way I'd like to talk about it when we're a little farther in. Okay. Uh, um. Did you, was your upbringing, did you grow up uh, in a household that was religious and uh, politically conservative? Or Yeah, I grew up in a Methodist household. My family was Methodist because that's what we had always been. And it wasn't a, a religiously conscious household in the sense of we sat down and talked about theology and, and so on. We just went to Sunday school and church because that's what everybody did. And as far as being politically conservative, I mean, everybody in my family was a Democrat, but I grew up in South Louisiana, where you are a Democrat. <laughs> right. I think the last Democrat my parents voted for was uh, JFK. Yeah. But, um, you know, the conservatism just came right along with the, uh, with the, in the, in the air we breathe. Mm -hmm. And I, I b became uh, very conscious of a, as being a conservative after I got out of college. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Oklahoma, and I say that, you know, many Oklahoma Democrats were much more conservative than uh, Massachusetts Republicans. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. <laughs> um, so, um, are we being, or is this yeah, we're, part yeah, of the we're, we're going, yeah, we're going. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> um, um, and then, so, you know, what? when I was talking to Amy Sullivan yesterday, I was asking her to think about... Um, what for her is important con historical context for understanding some of the places we've come to now in our public life with the relationship between religion and politics? And she gave me an interesting answer. She said she really felt like after Watergate, there was a longing for, because that was a moral failure at the very highest levels of politics and government, and she felt like there was a real longing for um for politics to kind of show their hand and talk about where they had their moral bearings. And she said, you know, and that kind of longing could have gone a number of directions. But Jimmy Carter came along as a born-again Christian wearing that on his sleeve than I, much more dramatically than I think most of us recall at this point. Um, and, you know, saying, I will never lie to you. And I was really interested when I'm looking at your writing, and you talk about your first political memory um, was of Jimmy Carter's failure um, during the Iran hostage crisis, that failed um, rescue attempt. Talk to me about how that started to form, you know, who you became then politically. I remember well as a child or an adolescent, because I was born in 1967, what happened with the Iranian hostage crisis. And I'd always grown up thinking that, you know, our country is number one. 
we we rule the world and it was a very childish way of seeing things but that's that's the way I grew up and then suddenly I saw our country humiliated day in and day out on television you saw what was happening in Iran and we and and my family and my culture we blamed Jimmy Carter he was weak mm-hmm. and I remember well waking up one morning to go to get ready for school and crossing the hallway in our in our house and my dad had the television on in his bedroom and there was President Carter's voice coming out of the out of the bedroom, and he was talking about the failed hostage rescue mission. And I tell you, Krista, I I was just so humiliated by that I could not believe. So that you're our country kind of you're a pro- teenager at this point, right? We thirteen. Yeah, I guess 14. I was twelve, was thirteen. Yeah, yeah. And it was just such a, a, a deeply felt humiliation. Hmm. I mean, I I come from the deep south, and we have a very strong martial tradition there, and it just seemed. Jimmy Carter, a fellow Southerner, had just ruined us, and we needed somebody strong who would stand up to the Iranians and stand up to the world and bring us back to where we as Americans should be. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started paying a lot of attention to Ronald Reagan around that time. And I remember well being in my bedroom the night that he won the election in 1980, and I felt, wow, we're saved. We really are saved. I turned off the little black and white TV. I went to bed and felt like everything was going to be okay. Hmm. So, yeah, so you said you came of age politically under Ronald Reagan. I mean, how how did that imprint you then? What does that really mean in terms of how you then became an adult and, and a conservative? Well, Reagan just seemed to be, at, to me at the time, to be a guarantor of order and a, rest, a restorer of order. Mm-hmm. I remember coming through the 70s, watching the 70s play out on television uh, from the the evacuation from Vietnam. I was a little kid then watching that, but it seemed to me that the world was falling apart. And it could also be, I've tried to psychoanalyze this within myself, (laughs) it could be that the, uh, you know, you're you're going through puberty and adolescence and the world is falling apart for for you on a different level. Reagan seemed like the figure who was going to put it all back together. Now, I went off to high school. I went to a boarding school my last two years of high school. And like most teenagers, you know, I became quite liberal. I was rebelling against my father. Mm-hmm. And I remember well running the Louisiana school students from Mondale chapter. There were, there were a few of us. <laughs> and confronting my dad about his support for Reagan. And I said, Dad, you know, you agree with Mondale on this and this and this economic issue. Why could you possibly vote for Reagan? And he really couldn't explain it. And I, I was just so angry at him. And I thought, oh, Reagan has has fooled you all. Mm. It was only later, after I went through college and got out and started working and began swinging back towards my conservative roots, that I began to see how little interest people like me, more you know, intellectual or writerly, uh, academic sorts, uh, how little we were interested in listening to people like my dad, registered Democrats, working class people. We didn't want to, didn't really seem to care why they voted for Reagan. We just wanted to lecture them about how wrong they were to to like Reagan. Hmm. And that was a real lesson to me in time. Hmm. That's interesting. Now, I mean, all of this is kind of also giving me some context for a, a, a watershed moment that you came to. Um, you you've said that you voted twice for George W. Bush, and um, just as you turned forty, um, you you re- you really like a lot of Republicans as well as Democrats um, came to a point where you were very disillusioned by the conduct of the war in Iraq and a sense that you had been wrong um, in your support for that. And I, but I wonder, you know, did even at your lowest moment of disillusionment with um, with that policy of this presidency, you know, did you doubt conservatism itself? Did you doubt the party? 
Oh, absolutely. I do doubt the Republican Party. I'm a Republican by default. Mm. I And I, I really despair of the conservative movement in America today. I, I am a conservative. I, I, I couldn't be anything else because of what I believe in. But I tell you, it's just so, it's so dismaying to me to see how little... How, how little reflection seems to be going on among Republicans and conservatives right now. We we played it out intellectually. We really have. We've been in power for a long time. We we keep wanting to go back to those glory days of Ronald Reagan as if the world had not changed since 1980, and it really has. Mm. I, I don't I don't think that the Republicans are going to do well this this November. I don't think we deserve to do well. I say that as someone who may ultimately vote Republican, but only holding my nose. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's just been such a, a a dismaying and a despairing time for me as a as a conservative and a Republican to see what we, my party, my movement did with the power that the voters gave us throughout this decade. And as somebody who who was in New York on 9-11, I I was working for the New York Post then, and I watched the towers come down from the Brooklyn Bridge and was deeply shattered by by what happened. And I thought, this is our time. I'm so glad we have conservative leadership in Washington. And they blew it. But, you know, a lot of your intellectual energy and your writing these last years has been in articulating a conservative vision um, that is... Um, well, you, you, your book, your 2006 books, you called Crunchy Cons, um, and this grew from an article in the National Review online, Birkenstocked Burkeans. And, you know, the first tenet of what you call the Crunchy Con Manifesto is we are conservatives who stand outside the contemporary conservative mainstream. We like it here. The view is better, for we can see things that matter more clearly. Hmm. What, do, what do you see from that view? Well, I tell you, I see a, a conservative movement and a Republican Party that is not, in some pretty deep ways, very conservative. And I'll tell you how this came came upon me. Okay. I was uh, I was a convert to Catholicism back in uh, the early 1990s. When I came back to faith as an adult, I came back through the Catholic Church and through reading Thomas Merton and uh, through reading uh, Walker Percy and Soren Kierkegaard, who, of course, yeah. wasn't a Catholic. But all these things brought me back to an adult understanding of the faith, and I became a Catholic. And not only did I become a Catholic, I became a very committed Catholic. And um, I, my Catholic identity was much more important to me than my identity as a Republican or a conservative. And what I began to see after I got married, I married in 1997, and we moved to New York City. I was working for the New York Post. My wife, Julie, and I were, were living there and making a home there. And we started that, we, we had our, our first child, a, a boy, and began rearranging our lives, you know, just doing what came naturally to us as Catholics, as practicing Catholics. But I began to see how the way we saw the world as parents and as Catholics really differed in some pretty significant ways from Republican Party orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And it, it finally hit me one day. It was, it was such an interesting epiphany. I was working at National Review magazine. This was back in 2002. And I told my, um, my editor there, look, I have to go home early today to go pick up a shipment of, uh, of organic vegetables from the CSA, the Community Supported Agriculture Co-op to which we belonged. And she looks at me and says, ugh, that's so lefty. <laughs> and I thought, well, gosh, you know, what's so lefty about vegetables? Right. But then I, I went and got on the subway, and I'm riding back home to Brooklyn from Manhattan, and I'm looking down at my shoes, and I'm wearing Birkenstock sandals. 
I said, well, gosh, you know, these are pretty lefty too. And I mm. thought about the day my wife, who went to the University of Texas in Austin, which is a super crunchy town, right. how she had convinced me to to buy a pair of Birkenstocks because my feet were killing me after we moved to Manhattan. And I mm. wouldn't do it because I said, oh, that's, that's so liberal. And she just rolled her eyes and said, look, right. they're going to be the best shoes you ever bought. So I tried them on and she was right. <laughs> so I started thinking on that subway ride home about all the, the ways that my wife and I were living, not in spite of being conservative, but because of the kind of conservatives we were, that put us off the Republican Party reservation. I mean, we, we loved little old shops and small things, not big, you know, big exurban, big box stores, things like that. We had learned how to cook for ourselves, and we suddenly had gotten interested in food that was grown by farmers in a traditional way because Mm. we thought it was a really conservative thing to support small family farms and farming cooperatives. And I just started thinking more and and making lists and about the people I listened to the most and the people I respected the most as Christians and conservatives were people who also had a real adversarial or at least countercultural stance toward consumerism, which is, you know, embraced wholeheartedly by many in the Republican Party. So what I ended up doing is writing a little short essay for National Review Online, outlining this sensibility. And, and then I thought you that was found the that, it, I mean, so in a way, what you, it seems like you had some kind of allergic reactions, which have, which it's very easy to see. I mean, those kinds of stereotypes, superficial stereotypes or judgments about certain kinds of people, right, liberals, um, you'd internalize those. But then when you published this article, you you got an incredible reaction from Republicans who said, I'm like that too, right? Oh, absolutely. It was so gratifying, but also shocking. I mean, (laughs) we had this one guy who wrote and said, I'm a Buddhist Republican, and I I just want to invite George W. Bush over to have a sit over a a bowl of dal and and talk policy with me. And (laughs) really, you heard heard from these people all over the country that aren't supposed to exist. I had Mm these um, crunchy conservatives, as I call them, you know, crunchy being the slang word for kind of granola eating, mm-hmm. um, uh, outdoorsy types. I had people writing all from all over the country saying, you know, this is me. I don't fit in with the Republican Party, even though I'm a conservative, but the Democrats won't have me because I, either I'm pro-life or, or for usually pro-life was the, the big really? issue that separated. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so I ended up writing a book about these people because there was such passion there. And people would read my essay and said, that's me. That is exactly who I am. Thank mm-hmm. you for articulating it. And uh, that's how I got a book out of it. Mm-hmm. And I continue to meet people over the Internet usually, but also when I travel who say, thank you so much for identifying this, but let's start a movement. Well, we haven't started a movement yet, but I mean, more and more people, younger people are realizing there's something really missing from conservatism as as is on offer today by the mainstream. And I think now we have an opportunity to add our voices to a real reform movement. Right. So I wonder if, you know, there have been pat generalizations the last few election cycles, and and many of them have been turned on their heads in all kinds of ways by this election. You know, one of them was that Republicans were religious and Democrats were secular. And, and, you know, this time you have a Democratic candidate who's very comfortable and articulate about his faith and a Republican candidate who's a person of faith, but, you know, just just says he's not that comfortable talking about it. But the other generalization has been... Um, to equate um, evangelical Christianity as a kind of with the religiosity of the Republican Party. Um, And as I say, those are generalizations. All of that is in flux. But I wonder, you've been Republican, um, a conservative columnist and writer, 
and also deeply religious, but not religious as an evangelical Christian. And I wonder how that, what, what kind of experience has that been for you? I mean, have, has that been a good, there, has the religiosity of the last eight years been a good fit for you, or has that also been challenging? You know, that's a great question and a difficult one to answer because I am not wholly comfortable with evangelical religiosity. I live here in Dallas and the heart of the Bible Belt, and evangelical religion is the main public religion here. I have plenty of friends who are evangelicals, and I'm actually happy to live in an evangelical culture, but it's something that I I don't, in my deep down, understand. Mm -hmm. But in the end, the evangelicals and I, I'm Eastern Orthodox now, uh, the evangelicals and I agree on the the main public issues that that would uh, that unite conservatives on the social on the social front, uh, okay. abortion, for example, gay marriage, for another, and uh, I am comfortable with standing shoulder to shoulder with them on those issues. Where I really depart, though, is this this sense that you have among a lot of evangelicals that th- this sense of a mission for of the United States. The United States has mm-hmm. what David Reeve has called an American theology, the idea that we have a special mission in the world, and our mission is to serve as God's instrument to bring democracy and you know, liberal democracy and all the things that we cherish in this country to the whole world. Mm-hmm. I think that sort of thing has really led the church, I'm speaking of the Christian church broadly, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, has led us into uh, a, a place of nationalism where we don't stop and, and realize that we are under God's judgment as well, and we've made some really serious mistakes that way. And th- this the worship, the uh, quote-unquote worship of our nation and its special purposes is something that I've become really allergic to, and I think it's a big blind spot on the religious right. And I wonder, I mean, I grew up in in that part of the country, also in Oklahoma, where just about everybody I knew was Southern Baptist. I mean, you know, it's it, it's it's the Bible Belt, and I mean, guess I guess what I'm getting is, I wonder if it if it is specifically the theology of evangelical Christianity, or or just the fact that um, so much of the U.S. population, that evangelical Christianity, which of course is a broad spectrum, um, is so entwined with American culture, um, and so it is just it's it's that nationalism that's become what is it, that civil theology um, that's just part of our history? Or, or do you experience right. it to be something that is specifically about um, evangelical theology? Well, I, I think it's it, it's deep within our own history. I mean, it's uh, David Reif, again, has pointed out in a recent essay in World Affairs that Look, this the the thing that people now call neocon foreign policy. Yeah. It's actually American foreign policy, and it goes back generations. And this idea, the shining city on a hill, as you know, goes back to the very founding. And I think it is a real American temptation to see America as a sort of secularized Israel, speaking in a biblical sense, in that we are that special nation set apart from all other nations to fulfill God's providence. And that is a very, very common theme you hear in, in political discussions among evangelicals on, on the right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know, we heard it recently when Sarah Palin gave her first interview after the, the convention. You heard it come out of her mouth, you know, this, this idea that, you know, we are God's instrument and that uh, she believes that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are inalienable rights and we should spread that around the world. Right. Well, I, I don't think any of us want to see anyone live in, in bondage, spiritual or, or, or otherwise, but... I think, if anything, the last eight years and our experience in Iraq should have taught us 
should have taught uh, us Americans not to be so full of hubris. Mm. And that the idea that we know better than the rest of the world is just madness and folly. Unfortunately, it's uh, a bipartisan folly. Yeah. You know, when I was speaking with um, with Amy Sullivan, she talked about something she has observed, that there is a double standard in American culture when it comes to assessing the religiosity of Democrats and Republicans. And she feels that this is something that journalists have bought into and, and, and perpetuated. And I, I want to ask you about this, if you experience this to be true. And this is how she uh, described it, that, you know, you have someone like Barack Obama who, um, and, and this is a, is a pretty recent phenomenon, I think. I mean, this is not the way it's always been in American life, that Democrats weren't religious, right? But, but certainly those of us now have, have this imagination about it. Um, so you have somebody like Barack Obama, who is Christian and very comfortable and articulate about that. But she says, you know, there's just this incredible parsing of everything he says and um, a real, just a huge question mark that's almost, uh, you know, that you can't overcome, you know, can he be really religious? You know, is this authentic? Um, Whereas um, the religiosity of a John McCain or a Sarah Palin is taken more at face value. Um, How do you, do you think that's true? I'm just... What's your yeah, I, I I think that there are a couple things there. I mean, John McCain reminds me of my father. He's the same age as my father, and my father can't talk about religion. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's religion is never something. He, he's a church going man, but you know, it's a, he's more stoic than yeah, Christian. It's a generational thing, I think. That, oh, I think absolutely so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, so, I mean, my folks love Sarah Palin because they think she's tough, but her religion has nothing to do with it. It's the fact that she's a country girl, but. Um, on on Amy's point about the the, Demo- the double standard with the yeah. Democrats and religion, I mean, there that double standard comes, I think, from the culture war going on within churches. I mean, on mm. the conservative side, you know, you have you know, I've spent many years as a Catholic, and you have conservative Catholics who would prefer the term Orthodox Catholics because they they believe what Rome teaches to be true. You know, they look at progressive Catholics and think you're really faking it. You know, you don't hmm. really believe what the, the Catholic Church now, that's says interesting. is true. So these these divisions that are much closer to home for people in their churches and their communities get transposed onto the way they're talk they're thinking about the presidential candidates. Oh, absolutely. And there's your hmm. divide in between, between American religious sides where you have the, the conservatives of the traditionalists who believe that there is such a thing as objective moral truth, it's transcendent, it's knowable through right. the Bible or through your church on the one side, and the progressives who believe that religious truth is something that can be reinterpreted to suit the, the demands of the particular situation in society. Mm. And that's a very deep and fundamental division. And I think that it, it, speaks to when, it speaks to the authenticity of someone who claims to be religious. I don't think anybody has any business saying, what, trying to judge Barack Obama's relationship with God. But I think it's certainly fair to say, well, how do you see God and how do you see religious truth? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I watched the um, Saddleback Forum, the two two interviews of Obama and McCain at Rick Warren's church. Did you did you watch this forum? I did. Okay. And I actually thought it was very poorly covered by journalists afterwards. You know, sound bites were pulled out on every side and, um, you know, that it was it was more interesting and important than it was given credit for being. And um, 
You know, I wondered why, uh, and I, you know, I just want to ask you to help me understand this. I, I felt like um, Obama's answer, for example, on the, one of the initial questions Rick Warren asked both of them, he said, what does it mean? You say you're Christian. What does it mean when you say that? And he gave a, a sophisticated, nuanced answer. And, um, you know, he talked about uh, biblical themes like, you know, caring for the least of these, caring for your brother and sister and the poor and the stranger um, that really also inform his policies and his view of the world. And when um, so on the one hand, I'm I guess afterwards I'm surprised and maybe I'm not privy to the places where this discussion is happening, but I'm surprised that that there weren't more conservative Christians who just appreciated the what I felt was the authenticity of that answer um, or the integrity of that answer. Um, and then at the same time, when John McCain was asked the same question, he, he gave a very brief kind of Sunday school answer, you know, that I'm saved for my sins. I don't want to sound like I'm belittling that, but it was a simple answer. And then he told a story that he's told many times about his a jailer when he was in, imprisoned. Mm-hmm. And... And so I guess, you know, I'm curious about why I feel like there's not more authentic reaction to both sides of that, um, even just giving Obama a little more credit um, mm-hmm. for for being talking about being Christian in that way and then maybe pushing John McCain a little bit harder and saying, you know, tell us a story about you know, what this has meant to you in the last few decades. So, I, you mm. know, I'm just asking you as somebody who's more inside that movement, is there, are there other reactions that the rest of us aren't hearing? No, I, I think that, for one thing, the abortion question, it completely overshadows everything else. And the fact that Obama said that it was above his pay grade to make a determination about when, when human personhood begins, mm-hmm. that defined wholly the the religious conservative reaction to Obama's presentation there, mm-hmm. because uh, I I think that you know for you know how strongly people feel about abortion, and I think that the fact that Obama didn't even try to address the question in a theologically meaningful way really made a, a lot of people who may be positively disposed to his Christianity judge him harshly. So that Secondly, really was the litmus test. So it, I, I think it was a okay. litmus test, but mm-hmm. also Krista, I have to say that you. Your religious progressives find the search and find seeking to be to be uh, so important. Religious conservatives put their emphasis on the finding. And as long as John McCain can say, bam, this is what I believe, mm-hmm. I'm going to stand firmly here, that's that's what religious conservatives hear, and they're, they're satisfied with that. I mean, I, I think a lot of people are interested in in seeking and in stories of of seeking faith. And so the nuance of Obama's answer would reflect that, right? Right. Well, Mm -hmm. people like certitude, and religious Mm -hmm. conservatives believe in certitude. Mm -hmm. And that Obama didn't really seem like, he seemed like he was someone who was more interested in the journey itself rather than the destination. That's the sort of thing that puts religious conservatives off. And what you're talking about there is a difference in sensibility um, on both sides of this cultural and political divide. And you know that, and that's what also can allow us, all of us, wherever we are on the spectrum, to hear the same answer and not hear the same thing at all. This is true. This is really true. And uh, when you saw it with Sarah Palin um, right after the convention, when the video surfaced of her speaking before her her church, right, and what she she talked about, you know, asking them to pray for the troops, I heard her say that as praying that please, that our troops will be on their mission and they will do the will of God. 
others, liberal friends of mine, heard that as her ordaining these troops, as saying they are doing the will of God. Mm-hmm. It was a very small nuance there, and I think you could plausibly read it both ways, though I think my reading is correct. But it is hugely important. Mm-hmm. I want to come back to that in a minute because that was also a point in the interview she had with Charles Gibson. And so I, I want to circle back around to that. I want to stick with abortion for a minute um, just because I'm trying to understand for myself and get clarity on why this is the deal breaker. Um, you know, why this is where the discussion stops or this is the litmus test. And so I want to say, like, Obama's answer at Saddleback, the the that's above my pay grade, got pulled out as a soundbite and reported as his whole answer. But in fact, and I hear you, I mean, this was kind of a searching answer. You know, he did say other things. He said, he'd said, I think pretty strikingly for a Democrat in recent memory, this is a spiritual and moral issue. Um he talked about the dignity of women, the decisions women made and make and the difficulty of the decisions women make around this. Um, but but John McCain's answer, as you say, was was life begins at conception. And um, I don't know, I guess I'm just I'm trying to figure out for myself and not just in the context of this political campaign why this is the issue where conversation completely stops. And it almost looks like it's very hard to imagine how both sides can get out of this rut. Well, you're right. I mean, it's I've known friends who've been involved in the common ground movement to try to build, uh, right. build bridges between pro-lifers and pro-choices. And it's, it's very, very hard because in the end, you, you have two irreconcilable um, positions there. Either life begins at conception and human personhood in terms of of legal rights and moral rights begins then, or it doesn't. And I I don't think that personally opposed, but makes a lot of sense. Because if you really do believe it begins at conception, then I mean, you you wouldn't say that I, I believe that if you're in the 19th century, you wouldn't say I believe black people are humans. But if if you don't believe that, well, you know, that's, you know, I'm not going to force my belief on on you in the South. No, it is an absolute position. Okay, so that for you is, the, is an analogy that helps. That it does works. help me understand mm-hmm. it because, I mean, you know, the three-fifths compromise where they try to say, well, uh, you know, uh, Africans are three-fifths of a person. And mm-hmm. it's just, it just doesn't make sense. And I, I think that there are some things on the right that we don't, that we can't fully reconcile with our, our pro-life position. But in the end, when I think, and this is a thing that just just breaks my heart about Obama, because I actually like him and think he's a good figure for public life. He, in the end, believes that uh, there is nothing that should get in the way of a woman's right to abort her unborn child. And I find that to be he, a very radical position. He does position. believe in, in, in limits. I mean, he doesn't favor abortion all the time in every circumstance. Does he not? I mean, I thought he was in favor of, or at least against the partial birth abortion ban, well, I, yeah, I think you may be right about that. I, 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 I mean, I think this is all unfolding. I do believe he's been very clear, and he may have said it at Saddleback, but I can't be sure, that he believes in abortion with limits. Um, and, you know, the truth is, you've mm-hmm. seen the polling as well as I have, yeah. that Americans' views on abortion haven't really changed one way or the other since Roe v. Wade. And uh, I, I think Roe should be overturned and send it back to the states. But if that happens... You know, the very next day, most of the states in the U.S. will legalize abortion to a certain degree. Hmm. I mean, there are pro-life Democrats who actually had quite a 
uh, a much, much more um, pronounced voice at this last Democratic convention than they have before. And there are pro-choice Republicans. Um, you were at the Republican convention. There was, there was a, a very impassioned discussion um, and lots of positions represented at the Democratic convention. Did, was that true of the Republican convention as well? You know, I wasn't at the Republican convention for the whole time, but mm-hmm. as a someone who's been involved with Republicans for a long time, I've always known pro-choice Republicans. Uh, you know, I work in the media, and on the occasion when you find a Republican who works in the media, he or she is usually pro-choice um, and a Republican for economic reasons. So there has been much more of a, of a, a big tent on the Republican side, certainly in the last 10 years, about abortion than there has been on the Democratic side. And I'm glad to see that that door cracking a little bit on the Democratic side. But I'll tell you what, if the Democrats were more openly and substantively pro-life, it would be a lot easier for somebody like me who dissents from the Republican Party line on economics mm-hmm. to vote Democratic. Mm-hmm. I, I, I tend to be an old line Catholic in my voting. You know, I, I believe in in a more on the economic progressive side of things, but I'm absolutely and in, in fundamentally pro-life. And so, you know, there's interesting there's interesting polling um, about young evangelicals. And I think we know, those of us who've been following this for the last few years, know that there's much greater diversity of of issues and of what is defined as what what are defined as moral values. And in fact, young evangelicals are embracing a lot of issues that you might put in your crunchy con <laughs> categories, right? And yet at this you know, that's at the same time, I mean I've seen some polling that um you know, that young evangelicals will say poverty is a moral issue and war is a moral issue and uh, the environment is a moral issue, but they are actually more conservative conservatively pro-life than their parents when it comes to abortion. I'm just wondering how, how, you, how you explain that. How does that make sense to you? Well, it, it makes perfect sense to me as someone who comes from a Catholic background because Catholics tend to think more uh, comprehensively about the way we apply the truths of, of our faith uh, to, to public matters. I mean, I, I go back and read in the 1950s some of the things that Russell Kirk and other traditionalist yeah, conservatives— Yeah, you talked about him a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, what they were writing. And the traditionalists see religion and morality as being the central cause that conservatives ought to take up. And they were often opposed and had very strong fights with the libertarian conservatives back in the 40s and 50s who believed that the chief issue was the state and rolling back the power of the state. What they eventually did in the 60s was come up with something called fusionism, which is when they realized that, hey, we have more in common than uh, in fighting against the dominant liberalism of the day than we do that separates us. And so let's put our differences aside and and let's roll on. And that's how we ultimately got Ronald Reagan and the conservatism Hmm. of the last generation. Hmm. Well, now that the Cold War is over and that unifying, the the, the unifying opposition to the Soviet Union and liberalism in power has managed to wither away. Well, now you're seeing these differences come out, and I'm I'm really excited to see among my generation. I'm I'm 41 years old, and my generation and younger, a more open mind among religious folks. I, I got an email from my National Review article from a seminarian. I think he was at Fuller, who said, "You know, we I'm so glad to see what you're writing. 
we had Jim Wallace out here to speak to us not long ago, and we loved everything he was saying about the environment and about yeah. poverty and social justice. Jim Wallace is a but, progressive evangelical, politically Yeah, the progressive, progressive evangelical. evangelical. And he said, but, but Jim said at the very end, and that's why you all ought to be Democrats. <laughs> and we were like, no, 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 we can't be Democrats. We're pro-life. We're for traditional marriage and so on. And uh, so there is nothing in the Republican Party right now that speaks to this emerging consciousness of mm. people who are traditionally conservative, but they don't feel like that the, the, the social responsibility and moral issues begin and end with abortion and gay marriage. Mm-hmm. And I'm really excited to see how you know, whatever happens in November, John McCain is probably the greenest Republican candidate we've had in a long time. I wish he were greener. But uh, <laughs> things are changing. And if you look over in Britain at David Cameron, what he's done to reinvigorate the Tory party by mm-hmm. being more green and by uh, by moving more toward a, a sense of society and reconstituting civil society as an animating idea among conservatives. We're going to see that here one way or the other. Hmm. I want to make sure there's still quite a few things I want to talk to you about. Can we go uh, and and about 15 minutes over? Can we go to uh, 315? I can, yeah. You can? All right. And we think the studio can, right? Okay, good. Because there's so much to talk about. (laughs) Um, Now, you also, we discussed this earlier on, you came to a place of soul searching um, about policies which have been enacted by a Republican administration uh, in Iraq. And I also wonder if you have been part of, either at the Republican convention or general, is there a nuanced discussion um, about war, about this issue of torture um, among conservatives that that maybe is not being reported uh, in the news? The discussion's happening primarily on blogs, on conservative blogs like uh, Mark Shea. He's a Catholic blogger, prominent Catholic blogger, who has mm-hmm. been plugging away against torture for the longest time and, and the responsibility of traditional Christians to oppose it. You're seeing it on uh, magazines like The American Conservative, which is the alternative conservative magazine, which has been strongly opposed to Bush foreign policy. It's happening, but it's not in the Republican mainstream yet. and That's why it just... It broke my heart and made me angry to hear things that the, coming out of the Republican convention putting down the idea that we should be concerned about torture, we should be concerned about the constitutional rights of detainees. That is fundamentally dangerous, I believe, and to the conservative movement and to conservatives and to constitutional government. I think that the silence of conservative Christians on the torture issue has been a true scandal. And I have to accuse myself on this, too. I've not mm-hmm. done a lot of writing about it. And uh, you have people, uh, liberals like our uh, cultural liberals like Andrew Sullivan, who has done fantastic work well, in you, trying to raise the The National Association of Evangelicals has also been talking about torture the last couple of yeah, years. Yeah, but but it's not in the mainstream. I mean, no. I they, and the Catholic bishops have talked about it too. But no, I see what you're saying. It's really mm-hmm. not been picked up by. It's not mainstream on the right, and that will be remembered in history, I believe, as a real stain on our conscience. And I wish that Christians, conservative Christians, would be more open about it because it is absolutely indefensible, absolutely indefensible. Okay. Let's talk about Sarah Palin. (laughs) Um, Because uh, especially, I think, with this dynamic of religion and politics, she came in pretty late in the game into the picture and and was really um, shook things up um, on that side of things because... Um, up to then, John McCain, because, as we said, is more reticent about his faith, certainly than George W. Bush, um, 
there had been some ambivalence on that on that that uh, deeply religious end of the Republican Party. Um, and you, I I remember reading the blog that you wrote, uh, I believe right after the convention, um, were very excited about her as a as a choice. So, you know, talk to me about how you have experienced that coming in. Well, I I really was excited about Sarah Palin at first, and. You know, it, I have to make a distinction between Sarah Palin, the cultural Rorschach test, and Sarah Palin, the politician. Okay, say some more about that. Well, yeah, because I, I, I mean, <laughs> being at the convention in St. Paul when she was, when, when after she was announced, you know, that Friday, then when it came to St. Paul, suddenly so many in the media that I was listening to at, there at the convention and reading on the blogs were were talking about her in a way that felt like. A, a nasty attack on her identity as a small-town person, as a conservative, and as a woman. Um, and I, I, I responded so um, angrily to that. And I, because I, these are the sort of people I grew up with. I mean, I look at Sarah Palin and I see my sister. Right. So you that's know, how she's t- the cultural Rorschach test. Well, absolutely. Uh-huh. And as, as a conservative and a religious conservative who's worked in the media all my life, I've worked in Washington and Miami and New York and now here in Dallas. I know how Christians of her sort are looked down on and conservatives are looked down on. I mean, it, it's a sneer. I have a Christian friend who works for a, a one of the networks and at the top of their news division, she is literally afraid to let her colleagues know mm-hmm. that she is a Christian, an evangelical Christian, because she's afraid she'll lose her job. And I thought she was putting me on, but she's not. And I know that this is how a certain mem- number of the elite media think about people like Sarah Palin. So when when this reaction was dumped on her and she was just slaughtered uh, on the blogs, I fought back. And it, it was a, a primitive response. And it's one that, you know, I, now that we're, we've gotten some distance from there, I'm, I'm not, I'm trying to back off of it and realize that, you know, she's not terribly impressive as a as a national politician. Well, but I was ready to fight this culture war, Krista, uh-huh, because uh-huh. It, I just felt it as such a sneer and such a put down that, that evangelicals and traditional conservatives and Christians like me have been putting up with and do put up with every single day. So, and I mean, even putting your own feelings aside, and I want to, you know, I want to go into some of the things that have happened more recently, but I wonder if you can really help me understand and help my listeners understand um, I mean, I had a little bit of cognitive dissonance um, about, and I wasn't reading so much of what was being written about her, her taking that, that seriously. Um, as uh, as a mother, as much as anything else, um, so, so I have a teenage daughter, right? And mm-hmm. my daughter's reaction when I told her or somebody told her that, that this was right, you know, right after she was announced and then it was announced that her daughter is pregnant my daughter's reaction was, everybody's making it seem like that's okay. <laughs> and mm-hmm. she's talking about Juno and Britney Spears' 16-year-old sister. That's a terrifying reaction to me as a parent, you know, as the mother of that, a teenage okay. daughter. Well, yeah, and that, that I do, I've also felt that there's this message being sent. And I think I would feel that way about any candidate on any side of any issue, you know, that that I had this reaction that was not political, that was as a parent. Now, um, and, and yet what I, what I, and it, it, the, the, uh, the way she was welcomed at the convention was so celebratory and it, and it, that, even that, I mean, I know that what people were applauding was not that her daughter is pregnant, but that she's keep, you know, but the way it was hand being handled. 
But I, f- I just, I felt, I was feeling this is more complicated than it's being made out to be. Um, it's a more complicated kind of role model um, for a woman or for a family than it's being made out to be. And, and I think a lot of people were having that reaction, and it could not have stood in starker contrast to what was happening on the convention floor. Um, so I'm just kind of handing that to you, and I want you to help me uh, understand Well, that, that, that is, boy, that is a, such a complicated issue because I don't see a, partic- a contradiction, a, a fundamental contradiction between preaching and teaching that teen pregnancy is is a bad thing, not something you want, right. and standing by uh, your daughter when she does get pregnant out of wedlock, because ultimately the the sacredness of life has to be the value that triumphs. And um, But it is a complicated thing, and I think that the, the political aspect of it was if Palin had put, Sarah Palin had put her daughter away, left her back in Alaska and tried to hide it, people would have said, oh, are you ashamed of her? Mm-hmm. Well, I think Sarah Palin was defiant and was going to let people know that I'm not ashamed of my daughter. We're going to stand by her. But at the same time, in taking that, that stance that I can completely understand as a parent, you do run the risk of normalizing it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've never really said this, but I, it's no secret in my family that my mother was conceived out of wedlock. Mm. Um, back in the 40s. And I mean, she didn't find this out until she was uh, a grown woman. And uh, her mother told her that uh, the man she thought was her father was actually her adopted father. And I know the shame that my mother has lived with all her life because of the circumstances of how she came into this world. And so I have a particularly acute feeling that we should not shame these young women who do find themselves in this situation, particularly since in the case of the the Palin girl, Mm -hmm. she's trying to to get a father for the child and trying to make the best of a difficult situation. And I have known, too, good Christian families, quote-unquote good Christian families, who have very conservative values, who've dealt with teenage pregnancy, and they've done the very best they can with it. And so it, it is a complex thing, but I, I was very proud of Sarah Palin for the way she handled that, even admitting that uh, you know there's a risk there that, that this might be seen as normalized. But I think you have to also see it in context of her son, Trigg, the... Uh, the baby she has who has Down mm-hmm. syndrome, that little baby is such an emotional touch point for the pro-life community and for right. conservative Christians. And I think, you know, beyond abortion, I think we're moving into a time, Krista, when genetic research is going to pose some very, very dire uh, threats to life and the sanctity of life. And the, the it raises the whole idea of eugenics and what it means to be have a life worth living. And I think the fact that, that Trig Palin was born and his parents welcomed him is to people like me, aside from abortion itself, it is an affirmation there's something fundamentally sacred and good about human life, however it comes to us. Mm-hmm. And and I, I honor that, um, that observation. And at the same time, again, you know, for me, there were, there were other complex, there are layers of complexity to it. So again, as a mother, um, you know, she went back to work three days after he was born. I mean, your wife has chosen to stay at home and homeschool your children. I mean, you know, women, let's face it, every woman I know has made a different decision about how to, how to juggle these things. And, uh, there's no formula. Um, but that also, uh, it's okay. So I'm not. I don't want to judge her about that. But at the same time, I think what's what's a little bit confusing is this utter celebration of her as the you know as as the model, the person who's worked it all out. Do you know what I'm saying? 
Yeah, I, I completely understand. In fact, this is a sort of conversation my wife and I had well, at I, home. My I wife think is, people are having this all over the country, yeah. I think you're right. I mean, my, my wife has said, look, you know, I don't think she should have done this. I'm proud of her for getting as far as she's gotten, and I think I agree with her on most issues. Mm-hmm. But she ought to be at home with those kids. Right, and, that's, yeah. And my mail has, and has at the newspaper has reflected some of that. There is definitely a strong sentiment among many traditionalist Christian moms who've chosen to stay at home or whatever, that Sarah Palin, God bless her for where she's gotten, but her first responsibility is to that family. Now, I say back to them, well, why couldn't Todd be the one to take care of these kids? Right. <laughs> and uh, that doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. that, as far as they're concerned, that doesn't work. I'm more persuaded that it could work, but um, my wife is not having it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, these are probably, she, she may be the occasion for some discussions we've needed to have more, more robustly. Um Let's see. So let's talk about um, how she's also become kind of a case study in, as you said, in how media and journalists talk. Well, one one other thing I want to say, do do you see the sense of something that Democrats said right away looking at the way she was um her situation was celebrated, that if if she were a Democratic vice presidential candidate, she would be accused of, you know, that her daughter's pregnancy would be proof of permissive parenting and a symbol for what's gone wrong with our society. I mean, do, do, you, do you agree with that? I think that's entirely possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I uh, people have asked me, well, what, how would you react if Barack Obama's girls were older and one of them got pregnant? Mm-hmm. And I know I myself would, would admire him if they chose to keep the baby, or Barack Obama said, we'll support her if she's chosen to keep the baby. But I'm quite sure that many on the right in talk radio and otherwise would have been condemning. And I think that is a hypocrisy that if we don't, if we on the right don't think we would, many of us would have reacted that way, we're lying to ourselves. Hmm. So there there was an interesting kind of test case of, of how, how um, journalists really still struggle to analyze the religiosity of candidates or talk about it when Sarah Palin was on Charles, was interviewed by Charles Gibson. And um, did you watch that interview? I did. I know you've blogged about it. Talk to me about what you saw, um, what you've seen happen with the way that played itself out and the way it's been reported. I mean, her, her discussion. Yeah, and it, the way he questioned her about... Um, for example, her some of the things she said about well the the quote you mentioned before uh, when we first began talking about um, her prayer for um, the soldiers. Her she was talking right. to a church group and talking about how yeah. Right. I, I I think that living here as I do in in Dallas, I'm much more accustomed to the way evangelicals talk about these things and the way they pray. In, in a way that I have to sort of be a cultural anthropologist when I, I talk to friends in, you know, back east who just don't understand these things. Even though I'm not evangelical, it's just normal to me. And it would be absolutely normal for me to hear her uh, as a Pentecostal or evangelical, whatever she is, before her congregation, you know, asking God's blessing on, on the troops. And I think this is a sort of thing that people in the media, um, in the mainstream media, who often aren't religious and don't understand how religion works, mm-hmm. it's weird to them. You know, a, a Jewish friend of mine in New York said, you know, in a Jewish tradition, we have prayers asking God's blessing on everything. 
And in fact, Barack Obama, when he went to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, the prayer he left in the Wailing Wall, which was you know, shamefully stolen by somebody and revealed, it, he asked that God would please, would make him an instrument of the divine will. And I think that's perfectly normal. And I, I don't think that Charlie Gibson really got that nuance uh, when he heard her speak. When he heard her speak, he, he heard theocracy. Well, and he heard it, cr- it really is an example of how just an emphasis on one word or, I mean, it's, it's nuance. You know, she, he quoted her as saying, our national leaders are sending U.S. soldiers on a task that is from God. And what she said is, our leaders, our national leaders are sending U.S. soldiers out on a task that is from God. That's what we have to make sure we're praying for. And, he, and it's that next sentence that at least can be interpreted to to very much change the the sensibility of this of what she said. Sure, and I, and I think many people in the national media are just waiting for her to reveal that she's really this troglodyte, you right. know, this this you know gun uh, shotgun toting Christian troglodyte, and and I think that they that that's why people like me, even though I have deep reservations about her qualifications for this job, when it's a culture war thing, I will defend her because. It just calls to mind all the times that I've, I myself have had these fights in newsrooms on the East Coast and among in social gatherings on the East Coast when I've been waylaid by people who cannot believe I can believe such horrible, horrible things. You know, and there's there's nothing more parochial than a Manhattan liberal. Let me tell you, and I come from a small town in the Deep South. <laughs> you know, I wonder if if what you're describing, um, your sense of being, having been sidelined, especially this attempt that you have made, or this, I mean, you are doing this, of integrating your a, a devout religious sensibility with the whole of your life, including um, your political conservatism. Um, you know, there was a funny sense that one had watching the Republican convention. It was very easy to forget that this is the party that had been in power for eight years. You know, there was a real, mm-hmm, there was a mm-hmm. real underdog feeling to it. And um, and I wonder if part of that is a reflection of the fact that of this of some of these dynamics of religion and politics and and the culture wars in which even Republicans who've been elected into office um, and and morally conservative people people who are conservative on these social moral issues. Um, still don't feel like they are taken seriously in the culture as a whole, even after eight years in the White House. Well, because they're patronized by the Republican Party in many By the Republican Party. Oh, sure, sure. Hmm. I mean, it's, you know, the the Republicans talk a good talk, but when it comes down to it, what they're mostly interested in are defense issues and business issues. Hmm. And it's so frustrating to me to see how how easily people like me, religious conservatives, fall into line. And, but I have to say, I'm, I'm accusing myself here because just, just the other day, you know, when, when Palin is attacked so viciously by the cultural left, you know, I fall, fell right back into line. I'm like, right. you know, forget all my, 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 uh, my, my qualms. I'm going to defend her. And it reminded me, Chris, of a story I tell in my book, Crunchy Cons, about being at a, a pub in my neighborhood in Dallas 
and uh, working on, on something, and I overheard four people who were clearly liberal, uh, middle-aged people, clearly liberal by what they were talking about, saying how they would love it if somebody would drive a truck bomb into Prestonwood Baptist Church, which is a big mega church here in Dallas. I got so upset by that because, you know, as someone who came through 9-11, I said, these people don't have any idea what they're really saying. But the idea that they could laugh about something like that just set me off. And by the time I I drove away and got home, I was sitting in my driveway literally crying Hmm. with anger and shaking with anger at those people. And I thought, this is exactly how it happens. This is how the people who are in power in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party manipulate us by manipulating our anger. And I... I've been thinking about that and and trying to manage my my anger and resentment uh, on the culture war front over the way Sarah Palin has been treated because I I don't want to get fooled again. Yet it seems we keep going back to the culture war. It's from the right and it's from the left. And I don't see how we get past it. You know, something that's interesting that I feel there are echoes of on both sides of this election is, is a gap between the candidate and the party or the, the, you know, the particular candidates and maybe not so much Sarah Palin, but John McCain, um, that especially when it comes to these issues of, you know, what it means to be rep- a religious and a Democrat or what it means to be religious and a Republican. And on the Democratic side this time, um, and I was discussing this with Amy Sullivan, you know, Barack Obama, in fact, is very much out front in a way of the party, the official party. Um, that is, would still, in some ways, there's still an inclination to contain religion. Um, and and this kind of passionate religiosity that has been part of the Republican identity for a long time, it, it seems like, you know, John McCain is not quite in sync with that. Um, I don't know. Is, no, he, is there he's something not in you're, sync. You know, so this like, like, and, but there's a lot going on on both sides among religious Republicans and religious Democrats. And, um, I don't know what that means or how well, that plays itself out. Well, you know, for me, Krista, I'm, I'm, I realized not long ago that I'm more interested in being religious and being culturally engaged than I am in being politically engaged. I remember a couple of years ago being at a, a dinner here in Dallas, a, a publishing house, a conservative publishing house had its 10th anniversary dinner. And they had some of their authors there talking about, you know, the, on a panel discussion after the dinner to talk about the future of conservatism. Phyllis Schlafly was on the panel, you know, and what there was she her? was. Somebody, a- somebody asked her. Yeah. yeah. She, what was yeah. what was her organization, Phyllis Schlafly? Uh, the Eagle Forum. E- yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, Phyllis Schlafly, the anti-feminist activist, she's been around right. forever. You know, she was there, and one of the audience members asked, well, what sort of prospects do we have going forward as conservatives? And she pounded the table and said, we've got to keep fighting the, the public schools, and we've got to keep fighting the judiciary. And I thought, you know, I can agree with some of that, but that's not where it's at. She's fighting the same battle she's always fought. Toward the end of the discussion, Tom Hibbs, who's a a dean of the Honors College at Baylor University and a Catholic philosopher, Catholic at Baylor, if you can imagine, (laughs) he said, you know, I think that we've really gotten this wrong as conservatives. I think that we have been so engaged in politics and putting all our hopes for cultural change in politics that we've completely ignored the value of culture and building up cultural institutions. And, you know, the more I think about that, Krista, the more I realize he's right, that uh, the poet Shelley really was right to say that poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Mm. And if we on the right would be more engaged in culture and think that culture is more than just whatever, you know, ersatz, uh, you know, uh, mock-up of 
of pop music that the evangelicals can come up with, or culture is more than, than just saying no to whatever the pop culture throws up there. If we can actually get engaged in the creative, uh, in creative things and creative endeavors at a very deep level in loving art for the sake of art, then maybe we might get somewhere in this culture. But I can't see that electing Republicans over and over again has managed to conserve anything. And I mean, do you, are you part of or aware of burgeoning networks and conversations? I mean, other crunchy cons where, where you do see um, those kinds of voices and that kind of imagination emerging? Oh, oh yeah. The internet has been fantastic for that sort of thing, for mm-hmm. helping, helping us find each other. And but, you know, the Internet is only a virtual community. I found here in Dallas, though, more and more I'm meeting people from different churches, different faith traditions, who come to my blog on BeliefNet or have heard about my book and who get in touch with me, who say, this is us. You know, we're we're conservative, but we're not really Republican, and we want to find some way to live in community together. And uh, we're already doing things like helping each other build chicken coops in our backyard, Mm -hmm. learning how to garden here in the city, and trying to find ways to integrate our families closer together so we can find out what it's like to live in community, because it's, uh, it's impossible to do feeling so isolated. I don't know what the answer is, but I think that we're asking the right questions. And as time goes on, more and more people on the right are going to have to face these questions themselves, and will do. So in the past few years, um, in part through your work as a journalist, or in fact very much through your work as a journalist, you moved, you made a move from the Catholic Church to Eastern Orthodoxy. And, um, and the reasons for that were painful, and you never would have chosen them, but I sense that you're very, very happy in your new church home, theological home. And I just, I wonder, has that not being, you know, moving from Catholicism to Eastern Orthodoxy, has that continued to inform or evolve your sense of what it means to be religious and to be Christian and to be conservative? Yes, it really has. And I, you know, I I got involved, I was a very committed Catholic, as I said earlier, and I was a political Catholic. I was very much aware of the, the war within the Catholic Church between the traditionalist and the progressives. And I planted my flag firmly with the traditionalist. And you know, within the Catholic Church, you know, you figure out which bishops are the quote-unquote good bishops and which bishops are the bad bishops, and you know, which parishes are good, which parishes are bad. And progressives do the same thing, too, just with the mirror image. But what happened to me was getting involved in writing about the Catholic sex abuse scandal at, in 2001 and then in 2002 when it broke big out of Boston. I began digging more and more, and the more I digged, the more I realized how rotten the hierarchy was. There really is no other word for it. And my sources were priests who were fed up with it, and f- seminarians and former seminarians and, and Catholic lay people. And I had one of the, the bishops I had looked up to as being one of the best bishops in the country, Catholic bishops. I'm not going to say his name. But he told me at one point, he said, look, if, if you don't trust the bishops to handle this, why are you still a Catholic? And that shocked me because I, I told him I'm a Catholic because I still believe in this, in the, that the church, what it teaches is true. But as we went on and on, I realized that I was so filled with anger and a, and a loss of hope that things would ever be right in the Catholic Church. And I was raising children myself. I've got three kids. And I finally realized, you know, what kind of icon of Christ am I being for my children? What kind of faith is this when you go to Mass and you don't know who you can trust and who you can't? I mean, we had a close encounter with a priest who was supposed to be suspended, but he wasn't here mm-hmm. in Dallas, and that right. was the last straw. Right. So. I ended. I, I couldn't leave the sacramental tradition, and for me as a Catholic, that only meant orthodoxy. 
And I, I washed ashore at St. Seraphim Orthodox Cathedral in Dallas and just went in to worship and be there among the beauty and be among the, the presence of Christ in the Eucharist and just not to have this anger behind me. And I never looked back in, in, in the end. And I, I, I was able to lay aside my anger at the Catholic Church when I left it because I, I, I love the Catholic Church and I chose Benedict as my name in Orthodoxy, mm-hmm. not only because I, I looked to St. Benedict of Nursia as my my patron, but also to honor Pope Benedict because mm-hmm. I love this pope. I love the Catholic mm-hmm. Church, but I could I had gotten so wrapped up in the institution of Catholicism that it separated me from Christ. And I really thought me and my friends were, were we would get together in New York or in Washington, wherever I lived, would talk about oh those liberals what they're doing to the church. We really thought we were talking about Christ. In fact, we were talking about the church. And in orthodoxy, which has its own problems, my own church, the Orthodox Church in America, has a huge financial scandal right now. But I have protected myself by not letting myself identify with the church as an institution. I love my church, but Christ is at the center of my life. And I have good friends in the church, including my our pastors, who say, keep it that way. Don't ever put your trust in the institution, only in Christ. And that's the only way I can keep myself sane. And and how does that um, does does that make a change in the way you approach being a religious person who is also interested in politics and a political person? Well, you know the in my book Crunchy Cons, I interviewed an Orthodox uh, guy, Hugo Byrne, who said who had been a Catholic too, and he told me for the book he said, you know, the thing about being an Orthodox is you're not on a war footing, his word, war footing. Mm-hmm. I knew exactly what he meant because in the Catholic Church. If you're an engaged Catholic, you are constantly aware of the culture wars and picking sides. Well, in the Orthodox Church, it's just not there. Maybe it's a a function of the Orthodox Church in this country being very small and not rich and not powerful. And so it's just you and God. I told my wife, in fact, I said, right after we became Orthodox, I said, you know, we are in a church that's tiny. Nobody knows who we are. We've got no money. We've got no political power in this country. This is exactly where I need to be. Yeah. And it has helped me separate out more clearly you know, what I owe God and as a Christian uh, from my duties in the world. I mean, it certainly has informed my duties in the world, my, my sense of what's important in life and what I need to be for and what I need to be against. But I'm not nearly as—the— the, 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 the space between my faith life and my political life has has grown, and I think that's probably how, as it should be, because that's how I screwed up before. I became a political Catholic, and I eventually became a bad Catholic, and eventually no Catholic at all. Hmm. So I wonder, um, you know, there, were, there are a lot of things we could talk about, but I, I, you know, I, I was going to ask you, for example— um, how if if you had feelings about this ad that the that the McCain campaign put out about that kind of made this made these allusions to Barack Obama as the Antichrist or you know or this there's a there's a suggestion now that there's some half truth in some of the some of the points that Palin and McCain are making I I'm kind of suspecting you're going to tell me that that's politics <laughs> well, um, I. And I don't know if you want to talk about those things as perhaps as moral issues. Um, I guess I think I want to ask you, and if you do, please feel free to do that. And I, I also just want to ask you maybe uh, for kind of final thoughts. Um, I think one one thing I've heard you say is, it was, let me say it this way, one thing that 
that observers seemed to see at the Republican convention was this almost just astonishing, what looked like at an, um, a, a, um, a surface of just unanimity. And um, and yet a lot of the things we have to deal with as a culture and in politics and in religion are very, very complicated. One thing I hear you saying is that um, you're obviously distinguishing yourself from the conservative mainstream, but you are conservative. And what you're about is also um, having a new, having a, an imagination and vision for the future of conservatism. And I think you're hearing, I'm hearing you say that if journalists and cultural observers were could be more attentive to nuance and diversity, it would be easier for you and people like you to present that more diverse face of conservatism. Is that is that correct? Well, if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, I I think that in in the media, um, we in the mainstream media, we think we're diverse, you know, because we we look across the newsroom and you see people of all ethnicities, you see men and women, gay, straight, whatever, but there is a shocking uh, near unanimity of opinion, and uh, I mean the surveys have shown this. It's not a a, a shibboleth from the on the right, and I I think that. Uh, if journalists had a greater appreciation for how religion worked and worked it more into their coverage, we would be able, we would see that we really are, there's a lot more nuance and diversity in American religious thought and practice than you would think from just watching the, the mainstream media or just, just being a, a, a passerby or a, a passing observer of the religious scene. I think that what's so frustrating, and you know, again, I accuse myself of this too, it's so hard to, to focus on what unites us as opposed to what divides us. Because what divides us are some really important issues. Right. If I were pro-choice, I would feel very strongly about it, and I, I would find it very difficult to compromise. But, uh, you know, I remember we, you and I are talking you know, on the week that uh, we, we marked the seventh anniversary of September 11th. I remember Krista being in Brooklyn, being in New York on that day and in the weeks that followed. And what a different country we lived in. I mean, I'm sure it was mm. the same way all over the U.S., but it was certainly true in New York when, mm-hmm. you know, we stood there side by side, conservative, liberal, gay, straight, black, white, whatever. We were one. I remember well standing there on the Brooklyn Heights promenade on the, on September the 12th with a crowd of people looking across the river at the pyre there in lower Manhattan. And it, it, it was just a, a phenomenal feeling. I felt these are my neighbors. These are my brothers and sisters. And when Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson came out with their statement that all the lesbians, the this, right. the liberals, right. the feminists, they caused this, I was outraged. And I wrote a column about it. Now, we knew that time couldn't last. But I would like to get back to that kind of country insofar as we can, where I, I acknowledge the, the things that divide us. But I want to celebrate the things that unite us most of all. That's why people like Amy Sullivan and I, she and I are friends. And I really respect her. We disagree on most things. Right. But, <laughs> yeah. but I, I, I love spending time with her. And I'd rather spend time with her than with someone who actually agrees with me but cannot see the humanity uh, in, in his opponent. You know, we're, we're opponents. We're not enemies. Mm. Okay. What just say a little bit more if you can about you at the same you know as you say so given that we're not in a moment of national crisis right now although there are plenty of things on the on the horizon that might put yeah us just back wait there. yeah um, um, and you part of what you're doing right now is carving out a robust conservative identity um, but what would make it easier for you um, and for us all of us to focus more on what unites us. What else comes to mind for you? 
Well, I think it has to be in completely non-ideological ways. Here in Dallas, uh, you find people, liberal and conservative, who rub shoulders with each other at the farmer's market. Uh, I write in my book about these farm families out in uh, rural East Texas who raise livestock uh, organically, uh, and they have big families. One One family has 12 kids, one has eight kids because they believe that's what God wants them to do. And these people are Christian fundamentalists, straight up. But liberals get to know them because, you know, liberals who are interested in eating clean meat and meat that's humanely raised, which I think is a very conservative thing to to do, by the way. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you get to know these families. You get to know, hey, these are fundamentalists, but they don't have horns. Mm -hmm. And we conservatives get to know liberals around a shared shared love of agrarian values right. and of good food and of good farming practices. And I think when you do little things like that that don't have any overt ideological uh, import to them or weight to them, it's really hard to see your neighbor who disagrees with you on this or that uh, issue as being less than human. Right. And uh, I think that's what we need to do more of. And it's not something, it's not a program that can come out of Washington or either one of the parties. Right. I mean, there's some irony that may even be a little bit tragic, that the, that the time that we tend to have these discussions is during a presidential election, which may be the last time, <laughs> the, oh, yeah. the, the, the least uh, likely moment for there to be breakthroughs on this. And we should turn off the TV, Krista. This this past week, I, I spoke to my sister Ruth down in Louisiana, and they had gone after Hurricane Gustav. They had went nine days without power. And she told me, uh, you know, I called to see if I needed to bring them any supplies from Dallas. And she said, no, 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 we're fine. But she goes, you know, I, I told my pastor in church today that this hurricane has been a blessing to me. I said, what do you mean a blessing? I mean, you've been without power for a week. She said, I know, but think of all the things we've gotten to do. You know, nobody out here in the country has any power. We can't go to work. We what we do at night is sit around and talk to each other. Hmm. Neighbors have been coming by to help out. We go help others out. We cooked on the barbecue grills, and <laughs> and we just stay up late talking. And it's been great. I mean, and I, I thought, wow, that's really it right there. Talk to people. Build community in a, in a way, in a very simple way that people used to do all the time. But now we've got so much money, and we're so busy, and the TV is always on. We forget about that. I don't think that's a conservative or a liberal thing, by the way, but I think it's one way that conservatives and liberals can get off of this rat race, get away from this consumerist culture and this this constant yelling at each other from MSNBC or Fox News and just realize, you know what, we really are human beings here and there's a lot we have in common and we have got to build these connections because Hard times can come. I mean, that hurricane yeah. knocked yeah. out civilization for a week down in Louisiana yeah. on, on 9-11. Uh, we, the, the big lesson I took away from 9-11 was realizing how quickly the entire world can change in the, in the course of a single morning. It was a psychological shock to me. So I want my nation, my community, my church, my people to build these bonds and build civil society and community in our little platoons because we don't know what's coming around the corner, but we need to be ready for it. That's great. Those are your last words. Thank okay. you so much. This what a pleasure terrific. to talk to you. Yeah, it was great. I, um, You know, I'd love to send you a copy of my book, not because I want you to write about it, but just because I'd love to be in communication with you and keep talking oh, please as do. kindred please do. spirit journalists. Um, so I'll get your um, I'll get your address and let's stay in touch. 
Oh, absolutely. Okay. Thank you so much for having me yeah, on. Your well, show really is one of the great ones. And I've got about five podcasts I listen to, and yours is one of them. So well, thank you again for having I'm, me on. This is, these are going to be wonderful programs, and I'm really excited for us to put them out. And um, When do you think this might air? Um, I don't know. We have to sit down and look at the schedule, but before the election. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You so. know, one thing I wish I talked about was uh, Matthew Scully, who wrote, uh, who wrote the uh, speech for for uh, Palin. It was he who changed my mind about animal welfare and factory farming, because oh. I was completely immune to listening to liberals talk about this. This was back in early two thousand. Then I read his book Dominion, and it completely turned me around because I knew he was a conservative, and uh, he made a conservative case for animal welfare. And uh, it was it was a revelation to me. It was another one of those epiphanies. But there's there's another show perhaps yeah, down the road. Yeah, and also another one of those people out there who are not so much in the forefront when people think of who conservatives are. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And mm-hmm. Matt, you know, he was a Bush speechwriter, and he's not a religious man, hmm. but uh, he is one of the most genuine and gentle and morally upright uh, men I know. Great. And he, I think he'd be a great interview someday if down the road. Okay. Well, we'll write that down. I'm. Larry, I've got a question from behind the glass. I'm going to be quiet for a minute while I'm listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you do. You don't mind being identified as do you? Do you mind? Can you be identified as a Republican? Would you rather be identified as a conservative? How? Well, I, I, you can identify me as a conservative. That's what I am, and I'm uh-huh. a Republican by default and a conservative by conviction. <laughs> All right, you know. I might just I, say I, that. I could, <laughs> If there were more home, for, uh, more of a home for religious conservatives in the Democratic Party, I'd be a Democrat. But okay. There's not, so here I sit. All right. Well, if we have any questions about that as we get closer, we may we may contact you again, just show Very you good. what language we're using, so you can make sure you're comfortable with it. Very Great. Good. Well, I hope okay. everything works out for your family in the hurricane. Yeah. Thank you. I'm gonna now that I'm done with this, I'm gonna go give them a call. So. Well, I would say we have an upstairs room, but right now, there's <laughs> seriously, I've been offering anybody in Houston who oh. who has family there, but well. right now it's too dangerous to get out, I think. Wow. All right. Well, hope our paths will cross again soon. I'm sure they will. Thanks, Take Krista. Care. Bye-bye. Good weekend.